There is nothing more frustrating than a locked door. Whether it is getting locked out of your house, your car, or a bathroom, closed doors are irritating. Closed doors to the truth about Jesus Christ are far more than irritating. They are deadly. But we shouldn't get discouraged. On today's Truth Encounter, we're going to hear Christ challenge the Church of Philadelphia about the open door He has placed before them. Our Truth Encounter teacher, Dave Wurtson, begins today's study with an exasperating situation we had in East Texas getting locked out of our suburban. Let's join Dave and discover how to unlock closed doors. We want to talk about the church of the open door. We think about the excitement of open doors. It reminds me of the frustration of closed doors. You ever get frustrated because the door is locked? Remember the story I told about Mary and I and the kids being out in Tyler State Park in East Texas? And our suburban has this weirdo thing in the back that if you hit this button on the side of the thing, it locks the car tight. Now, the old vehicles, you could get in easily. You could stick a hanger down through, or you could even get your fingers in the glass and kind of push and get into the thing. But those new GM products, when it's locked, it is really locked. And I'll never forget the frustration when I was getting all of our camping supplies out and getting all set up, and I happened to bump that switch. I shut the door, and as soon as I shut the door, you know what happens? You know what it's like when you shut the door and you know that you just locked the thing? Man, I remember getting by the window and looking longingly at the keys that are dangling from the ignition. You ever been there, done that? Nothing more frustrating than a locked truck. And nothing more frustrating than facing your wife looking at going, how could you ever be so stupid? I went to the telephone, called up Sewell, where we bought the truck. And they had an amazing thing at Sewell. They had records that told exactly who made our truck, exactly what the serial number was to get a key, and amazingly, way out in the jungles of Tyler State Park, in two hours, a locksmith was there, took out a key that was designed by the maker of our GMC Suburban, stuck it in the car, and my frustration was over. The door was open, and I could reach in. That's what we want to talk about today. I want to talk to you about the owner of your life, the owner of our church life. And I want you to catch a glimpse because maybe you're sitting there and you're frustrated. You're kind of like me looking through your suburban window and you feel, man, I've been locked out in my life. The doors are closed. Things that I thought God was going to do, he hasn't done. And things that I really thought he wanted me to do for him, he just hasn't opened the way. I want you to open up to the Church of the Open Door. My dear friend, Dr. McGee, when he was alive on earth, pastored a church in L.A. called the Church of the Open Door. And that was modeled after the path we want to look at today. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And let's look at the Church of Philadelphia. We're on our next to the last letter, being exposed to these seven churches in Asia that really lay the groundwork for what churches are going to be like all during the church age. And this is probably my favorite church. In fact, Jesus probably commends this church more than any other. It's an incredible church. It's a church that's not really big. It doesn't have a lot of financial resources. But it's a church that has a tremendous open door. Look what Jesus says in verse 7 of chapter 3. To the angel, the messenger of the church in Philadelphia. Remember we've learned that the angel, the word angel, means the messenger. 
And because these letters are written to these individuals, and we wouldn't expect the Lord to write a letter to an angel that, that's not going to be able to be physically with the people in the churches, that we've understood messenger in this context, not in its usual case to refer to a, a heavenly messenger like an angel like Gabriel that comes to announce the good news to Mary, but in this case we've pictured seven men that gathered together with the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And as the Holy Spirit inspired John to write out this letter, these seven letters, these seven men rolled up their parchment scrolls that John had written on. They went across the, into the, the Asia Minor proper, and they've now been making a circuit through seven churches, incredible churches that are churches just exactly like ours. And they're marching, you know, from one city to the next. And they've just come about 28 miles from the previous church, a little bit farther south. And they now come to the church of Philadelphia. So you can picture again this emissary from the Apostle John coming to meet with the church, just like us gathering together. Only in this church in Philadelphia, this messenger stands up and he reads for the first time the letter to the church of the Philadelphians. Now, this city is called the City of Brotherly Love because it was founded by a man named Attalus back about 200 years before Christ lived. He was called the man who loved his brother because he twice was willing to relinquish his throne and give it back to his older brother, a menace. And so he became a title. What a neat title for a king. The man who loved his brother. And he founded this city. It's one of the newest cities as far as the seven-circuited city that we've been studying. And it was founded basically to take the Greek culture into all the highlands of what is, what is what kind of like northern Turkey today, called Phrygia in the ancient world. It's about 1,500 feet high, kind of like the Nebraskan plains. It's the high plateau land. And this city, Philadelphia, was founded to be a mission to reach out and to bring the Greek Alexander the Great's Hellenic culture to this area. But Jesus had other plans for this city. He didn't want it just to be a mission place for Greek thought and Greek philosophy. He wanted to become a mission for the propagation of the good news about Jesus Christ. And so a church was born in this city called Philadelphia. Jesus introduces himself. Remember in these letters that unlike our American letters where you've got to flip all the way to the end to find out who it's from, Jesus tells you right away who it's from. And as you're going through these letters, I want you to notice that these letters always focus you on Jesus. In fact, you could make an entire study just taking these letters and looking at the address of Jesus as the king, addressing the letter to these churches. If you feel that doors have closed you today, if you're like me outside the suburban wondering, how in the world did I do such a stupid thing and how am I ever going to open the door to my truck? If you're feeling like, how am I ever going to open the door to my life? I want to share with you, first of all, you need to get your eyes on the addressee that wrote this letter. You need to get your eyes on Jesus, because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not even about our church. It's about Jesus. Every one of these letters focuses you on Jesus. I, want to, I just want to pray that the Spirit of God will help me to cause you to appreciate Jesus. Because Jesus keeps coming on. He keeps blasting through all the way from the beginning of time, whether it was the Babylonians destroying the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, whether it was a crumbled up temple that's just a rubble of stones, and Jesus begins to work, and he raises up a temple, and eventually Jesus himself came and walked into that temple. Whether it's this church of Philadelphia, just a little church and feeling like, what in the world are we going to do? 
Jesus begins this letter saying, you need to get your eyes on me. You need to get a hold of who is writing you this letter. Look what he says. He says, these are the words of him who is holy. These are the words of him who is true. And these are the words who holds the key of David. Those words should just literally excite you. And if I think about my own life, the one who is holy, the word holy is one of those elusive words that whether I was sitting in a theology class in Dallas trying to get my fingers on it or whether I'm trying to communicate it to you, it's really hard to understand holiness. It conjures up to me like uh, the Westminster Abbey, you know, a bunch of little English boys with their beautiful choir robes on singing high soprano because their voice hasn't changed yet. And somehow I feel like this is holy. But to be honest with you, it doesn't really help me in my practical life. It doesn't really stir me. What it does is create some nice, good, warm feelings deep in my gooey stomach when I'm kind of nostalgic about holy things. And and I, I relate holiness to musty cathedrals, don't you? But if I think of holiness, I'm caught in the musty European cathedral. You know what I'm talking about? And and all that, that kind of feeling. But you know, that's not what holiness is about. In fact, I can explain to you what Jesus meant when he said that he was holy. If I bring you on Thursday night when Josh and I played basketball over in Arlington in a league over there. And I was sitting on the bench because when you get as old as I do, that's what you tend to do a good bit of the time. But there was a young guy, a really good guard. I mean, he's a sharp guard, but he would ride on the bench too and he encouraged me. Until he said, he looked on the court and there was a guy that was 10 years younger than me. And he, this guy made one of these fast moves that's done in incredibly slow motion. He tripped and then went kind of rumbling down the court. And this young guy's thinking, man, I hate these old basketball players. Man, I was thinking, man, I hope he, uh, I, you know, I'm about 10 years older than this guy. I said, you know, it's it, really nice to have the encouragement. To be honest with you, you know what? When I walk out on a basketball court in Arlington... Everybody goes, ho-hum. They yawn. You know why? Because I am not a holy basketball player. I am a basketball player who is filled with holes. You know, I'm short and slow. I've got all the credentials you need for an old basketball player. But you know what? If next Thursday, as we were warming up, I said, guys... I want to introduce you to somebody that just happened to come down here to visit with us. And I said, I'd like to introduce you to Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan walked out on the court. I got news for you. Nobody was sitting on the bench going, man, these old, slow basketball players. The guys in that court, first of all, would run for autographs. They would be awestruck. You know why that's so? Because nobody... I mean, nobody has ever played basketball like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan changed the way basketball is played. If you don't know anything about basketball, you know about Michael Jordan because nobody ever could jump like he did. Nobody could ever make the moves like he did. But what really made him great is when the crunch time came in the big playoff games, 
There was one player after another that had the size and had the ability. But when crunch time came in the playoffs, nobody, I mean nobody, turned it on and had fire in his eyes like Michael Jordan. If you play basketball at all, the reason you're awestruck by Michael Jordan is that when it was time in the big game to really come through, Michael Jordan went on fire. He took over the game. He hit shots one after another and hit every time. And left the audience just spellbound in silence. You know why? Because Michael Jordan is in a class by himself in basketball. So when he retired, when he retired, people said, there will probably never be a basketball player like Michael Jordan. But you know what? 20 years from now, no young basketball player will be awestruck by Michael Jordan. No matter how great he is today. No matter how much more he can play. Because Michael Jordan is caught in the same flux of time that I am. Michael Jordan's body is going to begin to wear out and he's not going to be that awesome. They're going to have to watch him on videotape. You know why you got an open door before you? Michael Jordan is a holy basketball player. He is a set-apart basketball player. He is in a class by himself. But I praise God that I'm not focused on a holy basketball player named Michael Jordan who's just going to become video film clips, but I'm focused on Jesus who is in a class by himself when it comes to existence and life and creation. Amen? Amen. That's what you got to believe. That's what this is about. He's holy. That's what it means that he's holy. It means that you need to get up in the morning and you need to realize the Savior that's come to live in my life is in a class by himself. And oh, I'm thankful for that. He'll never wear out. I never have to watch him on some dated video clip. He's going to play life, abundant life, forever and ever and ever. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is holy. What a great, great thrill. This is the man. The ultimate holy one. That's what it means that he's holy. He's in a class by himself. The word holy is a title that's used for only God in the Old Testament, the prophets like Isaiah. Jesus was called the holy one by Peter when Peter said, who do men say that I am? And, and, and all of them answered, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're a prophet. And then Jesus said, well, who do you think is my disciples? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Then he adds this, you are the holy one of God. Peter was adoring Jesus saying, you are the one who's in a class by himself. No one else can be God's son. No one else can be the Messiah. What a great privilege to have Jesus, the holy one, running to us. But you know what? I could get you all excited about the Holy One, but if it wasn't true, if it all turned out to be a lie, then what do we have? And that's where Jesus says, but I'm not just the Holy One. This isn't just a good story. This isn't just not something on Sunday morning that I get to where I feel good about, but, but I am the true one. The Greek, when they thought of true, they thought of this is the real one. This is the one that when all is said and done is going to prove to be really there and really present for us. And it doesn't mean that. But the Hebrews, when they thought of the true, when they thought of the one that would be faithful to us, the one who would keep his promise. And I want to combine those. I think John would combine both those Greek and Hebrew cultures. And they would say, listen, my brothers and sisters in Philadelphia. He would say, listen, my brothers and sisters, you are being addressed by the one who's in a class by himself, the Holy One. But second of all, you are being addressed by the one who is ultimately real. And because he's ultimately real, he will always come through and faithfully keep his promises for you. And then Jesus tells us that he holds the keys. 
Man, what a privilege it was for me to call up Detroit or be able to get in touch with Detroit and have them send the design specifications for my truck. Because Detroit made that truck. You know what Jesus says in this next little verse here, this next little phrase? He says, he holds the key of David. Look what it says. He holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now, if you turn back to Isaiah, turn back to Isaiah chapter 22, we have a strange story. It's a story of a, of a competition between Shebna and Eliakim, Isaiah chapter 22. And it's in the time of the prophet Isaiah, Hezekiah, the king is reigning. And in Isaiah 22, it says something really weird about this competition going on over the house of David. Look at verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 22. It says, On that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. You probably never heard of this guy, but listen. I will summon Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will fasten your sash around him and hand authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place, and he will be a seat of honor for the house of the Father. And all the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls and the jars. What is it saying? There was a man named Shebna. And Shemna was building a big funeral parlor for himself, a place where he was going to be buried. He was wearing fancy clothes. He was walking around Jerusalem because he was Hezekiah's keeper of the keys. He had the keys that let you into the house of David. And he was proud of it. But the Lord God of heaven saw his pride and said, we're going to take Shemna off the, this authoritative position in Jerusalem and we're going to hand the keys to a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim is now given these keys, and now he's driven like a peg into the wall, and everybody starts to hang their coat in him. What is it saying? Now when you come to the city of Jerusalem, the man who holds the authority, the man that lets you into the house of David to see the great king Hezekiah, the man that lets you into all the wonders of the holy city, is a man named Eliakim. And everybody's excited about that, because he now holds the Davidic key. But I want you to notice something. It says right in the next paragraph, it says in verse 25, In that day, declares the Lord God Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging out will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. What is it saying about Eliakim? It says everybody kept hanging their coat on Eliakim. Just like it's happening in your own life. Some of you have hung your coat on an Eliakim. And somebody else put their coat on. And somebody else put their coat on. And somebody else put their coat on. Have you ever hung up a bunch of winter coats and suddenly the whole thing goes right to the ground? That's what's going to happen to everything and everyone that we hang our coat on, our life on. Even if it's this Eliakim that was ordained by God in the Old Testament, eventually he fell just like any human being. You know what Jesus is saying in Revelation? He's saying, I'm the greater Eliakim. In fact, Isaiah 9 predicted a little child that would come and the government would be on his shoulders. Isaiah 53 predicted that the suffering servant would come and would pay the penalty for our sins. And what Revelation is telling us here is that Jesus is this Davidic son, this one who holds the key to David. Only the ante has been upped of infinitely, a thousand, a million fold, because Eliakim just held the key to a temple in Jerusalem and to a palace in Jerusalem that, the, that Nebuchadnezzar and his, his armies came and just totally demolished. 
Just about 150 years after Eliakim lost his peg and lost his marbles. But you know what Jesus said? I am in a class by myself. I will keep my promises. You know what he's saying here? I've got the key to heaven. I've got the key to the heavenly Jerusalem. I've got the key to ultimately dwelling with God. That's the one who's running this letter. He wants us to get his eyes on this great Davidic Messiah. This is a Davidic messianic image. All the way through the Old Testament, the one who holds the key to the household of David is ultimately pointing towards this great Messiah that will come. And I want you to realize that a society that wants to say, well, Jesus is for nice Bible church people. Jesus is for nice Protestants. Jesus is for Roman Catholics. But Jesus is not for Jews. He is not for Islamic people. I got news for you. Jesus is the only one, according to the inspired word of God, who holds the key to the eternal kingdom of God. And I want you to really hear that strong today. Because you need to build your entire life on that. You've got to be trusting Jesus as the one who holds the key. And it's going to be really important. You see, someday you're going to pass on to an eternity. Just before I left for Albania, I went to see Dr. Kip, the powerful plastic surgeon that was Mary's boss when we first came to Dallas. And Dr. Kip, I just got news that his body was riddled with cancer. And he said to us, he just shared with us the incredible thing. He says, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is that very soon I'm going to be reunited with my blessed wife, Mary Beth. The bad news is that I've got cancer just riddling my body. And while I was in Albania, Mary wrote me and said, Dr. Kip had crossed over that river. So I was just with a man. It happens to me a lot. I was just with a man that was believing something, that was trusting someone. I can remember, as Dr. Kip shared with me about being with his wife, I remember as he began to read through the book of Romans from his religious background, thinking that you got to heaven by working hard to try to get there and to try to do good works and to join the church and to go through sacraments and all of that. I'll never forget Mary and Dr. Kip interacting about the book of Romans. And I'll never forget the day when Mary came home from work and Dr. Kip had come into her at the office and said, it's, it's free. You're justified freely. It's a gift of God. Paul says it right in the book of Romans. Never forget that day. Boy, am I thankful for that day because he finally grabbed the key. Please grab a hold of him this morning. Right where you're sitting. This isn't about about some kind of church. It has to do with your destiny and whether or not you've met the one that holds the key. Dr. Kip came to the place in his life. He was a good man. He was a man that would, that would even give lots of his medical services away, but he didn't grab that key until he trusted this great son of David. Do you understand that? Jesus is saying he is the one who holds the key, not our church or some other church or some human figure. You've got to grab a hold of the one who holds the key. That's what faith is, to grab a hold of Jesus. And Jesus is saying this great, incredible truth that he is holy, he is true, and he holds the key of David. What he opens, no one's shut. If you're discouraged today, if you've received the key of the house of David and you've invited Jesus into your heart, i got news for you. There has been a door open to heaven and no one will ever be able to shut it to you. Isn't that great to know? I want you to think about that. I mean, that is incredibly good news. Jesus is saying, if I open a door, no one, I mean no one, can ever shut it. If you've received the key of the house of David from the Son of God, 
which meant that you've received the key to the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God, and the great flow of the progress of doctrine in, in the book of Revelation, then Jesus is saying to you, I have opened the key to God's eternal kingdom for you, and I mean no one, no one can ever shut it. When Satan tempts you, you need to read that verse. When he tempts you to feel like, man, you're not a child of God. You're not going to ever make it. Why do you even keep trying this Jesus thing? You're just a big loser. Jesus says, get your eyes on me. And you remember that time when you trusted in Christ for your personal salvation. And you picture yourself getting that eternal key and grabbing hold of it because you've gotten a hold of the person of Jesus. In reality, he's gotten a hold of you. And he says, when Jesus opens the door, he's in a class by himself. And I mean no one, I mean no one can ever shut it. That's what he means to these Philadelphian believers. Isn't that great news? That means my dad is in the eternal kingdom today because he held the key, the house of David. Jesus was his savior. My mom is in heaven today. A lot of your loved ones are in heaven because they grab the key. And as we go through this earthly journey, we don't have to get totally discouraged sitting on a bench in Arlington because some young ball player is saying, man, you're just not what you used to be. Because I can look at him and say, man, I hold the key. I'm going home. I'm going to be all right. Man, I might be getting older, but I'm headed in the right direction. And there's a door open that no one's going to ever shut. And I'm going to walk right out of this earthly existence that's so caught in time, so caught in wearing out, so caught in, in dreams that fail. And I'm going to walk right through an open door into a land that's more beautiful than C.S. Lewis's Narnia tale ever dreamt Narnia could be. And every chapter will be better than the chapter that came before. That's what Jesus is saying to these Philadelphian believers. Now he shared with them, like he always says, he begins to evaluate. Verse 8, this great, great son of David says, I know your deeds. You know, that's really important. One of the things as you grow older and one of the things you kind of evaluate, what have I done? You know, sometimes we wonder about recognition. And I want to say to all of you, one of the traps that Satan's going to get you in, it's going to get you to turn away from serving the Lord, is going to be the trap of feeling that nobody knows what I did and nobody recognizes me for what I did. And I want to encourage you, if you live for human recognition, you're going to bomb out a faithful, long-distance running in the family of God. You've got to get a hold of this letter. This ultimate one, this true one says, I know your deeds. Jesus knows all the things you have done for him. That's what these letters are saying to us. He's been walking through your life. He's been walking through my life. And he is excited about what he's been able to do through you. And he hasn't forgotten one of those things. And you know, one day when you get to heaven, he's going to bring you before all of the hosts of heaven, put his arm around you, and he's going to say, I want you to know this is my child. This is my kid. And I want to brag on you. I want to brag on what my child did, what we did together during planet Earth time. That's what it means when Jesus says, I know your deeds. And some of you say, well, I think what I'm doing is so insignificant. Man, you know, I, I don't think I'm really accomplishing something. I got news for you. No matter how much you play that game, it's going to be a losing game. Because you're always evaluating yourself compared to someone else. It's a game that we all play from the time we're young. And Jesus says, I want you to stop playing that game. He says, I know your deeds. I don't want you to compare your deeds to somebody else. But I want you to play the unique role that you need to play. That you're designed to play in the body of Christ. I know your deeds. And I'm not comparing you with Chuck Swindoll or Billy Graham. You know, you read Just As I Am, Billy Graham's biography. It's a great read. 
But one of the things that I found myself doing is I read about thousands of people coming to Christ and whole continents coming up to Christ. They feel like doing, man, what in the world have I ever done? You ever feel that way? Don't feel that way. As you read the scriptures, as you read the scriptures, Jesus is saying, I know your deeds. I know where you're at in the body of Christ, and I want you to know that I appreciate what you're doing for me. I know your deeds. And the real trick to the body of Christ really being full of the Spirit and accomplishing what God wants them to do is for all of us to become little people that really are used by Christ in the little ways that he wants to use us every single day. When Jesus puts it all together, that's what really makes things happen. I know your deeds. He says, see, I have placed before you an open door. I think in this, this open door here is the open door to the millennial kingdom. It is an open door. If you really get a hold of the fact that you've got an open door to the eternal kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom of God that comes first and then the eternal kingdom, then you're going to be excited to walk through the open missionary doors that God gave you. But in this context, I don't think he's primarily giving them like a a missionary thrust. There is that ultimately behind it. Later, in just a few verses, he'll say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice. And we're going to talk about a door that anyone can come into relationship with Jesus. But in this context, I think he's giving a deep encouragement to the Philadelphian church. Because he knows if they'll grab a hold of it, they'll understand. If I know I've got an open door into heaven, then I'm going to be filled with enthusiasm. And I'm going to reach out to others. I'll walk through the doors of evangelism that God gives to me. To see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You've kept my word. Boy, I pray that the Lord would write that over all of our lives. That you have kept my word, you have not denied my name. You know, we were in some castles, and in some of the castles they have some of these rooms where you can see the way they tortured people. In fact, Ed, when he was doing his studies on the Moravians... He had a lady that wrote to him, and the lady said that they had found in their family archives this clip. It was a tongue clip. And they would put in the Moravians, when they were caught in Europe, and they were going through the Inquisition, and they tried to get them to deny their faith, and then they would put them on a pile of wood, like some of you have seen the movies, where they burn somebody alive. That actually happened to Moravians by the thousands in Europe. And this tongue clip they would put this tongue clip in a person's mouth so that as they were getting burned at the stake, it would hold their tongue and they couldn't say anything. So the enemies actually would put this in because the Moravians were praising Jesus so strongly and so many people were receiving Christ during these burnings that their enemies actually put this tongue clip into their mouth to keep them quiet and so they couldn't proclaim Jesus. Isn't that something? And this family and their family archives had one of these tongue clips that the enemy had used against their relative. That's what Jesus is talking about, the Philadelphian church. People that have been bold in holding on their witness for Christ. And I was thinking about that tongue clip. Man, they needed to put a tongue clip on these Moravians to keep them from proclaiming Jesus when they were being burned. And I think of the tongue clip Satan puts on me that keeps me from being bold in my witness for Jesus. And Jesus comes to me and says, David, he puts his arm around me and he says, I want you not to be ashamed of me. I want you to keep my word in public. I want you to proclaim me. I want you at school. I want you in your work. Not to have a tongue clip on your mouth that keeps you from praising God. 
And the Philadelphian church comes to us as a model today. They're saying, you are holy before the Lord. You are connected to the true one. You have the key to David given to you. Open your tongue and proclaim his glory. Hold fast his word and powerfully proclaim it. That you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Verse 9 talks about the enemies. It says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. It's very important that we talk about a verse like that. We think of the opposition. I want to, first of all, take you back to the first century and what these Philadelphian believers were facing. In the first century, it was not a powerful cultural Christian church with big cathedrals and political power that was there in Philadelphia. It was a small, fledgling group of people. There was a group of Jews there that had a synagogue, and evidently the synagogue in Philadelphia had a lot of power that it was exercising over this group. Okay? And they would actually get involved with the political powers of their day, and then they would persecute believers. It's very hard for us to understand, but in the first century, one of the basic thrusts of persecution against believers came from the Jewish synagogue. Remember Jesus when he was arguing with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you will do? That wasn't an anti-Semitic statement. Jesus himself was a Semite. Jesus himself was Jewish. What he was saying is that as you go through life, you come in contact with people who are resisting the truth that's revealed in the word of God. They resist the good news and they actively try to force people to not receive it. And they try to crush those that are proclaiming it. Wherever you find that, wherever you find, whether they're a Christian church and the name Christian or whatever label you want to put on it, whenever you find somebody who's attacking the true message of Jesus, whenever you find that, it's the synagogue of Satan. It's the gathering of Satan. The tragedy of what happened in church history is, is that the persecuted became the persecutor. You see, as time began to change and as the Christian church began to gain power and gain prestige, they grabbed the controls in Rome. They grabbed the political power. We need to learn lessons from history. Whenever the Christian church grabs political power, it destroys its ability to present the message of grace. The message of forgiveness in Christ alone. They begin, rather than freely calling for people to respond to Christ willingly and freely, which is the only way anyone can ever come to Christ, whenever the Christian church down through history grabs political power, the next step is you begin to use political power to coerce religious belief. And that's why we've had a horrible turnaround in our, in our day. In the name of Jesus... The Jews in the Holocaust were killed by the millions. And I want you to know that from from this context in Scripture, those that butchered the Jews in World War II were the synagogue of Satan. Do you understand that? It's very important to not politicize these things and begin to think that the Christian church has some special hegemony because we need to be done on our knees crying over what in the name of Jesus has been done. We're not going to ever reach our Jewish brothers until we understand that. And our sisters, and cause them to really understand that Jesus is not a Gentile killer. He is Yeshua, the Jewish healer. 
you can see the incredible deception of Satan. In fact, I, I think we need to just pray fervently that the Lord will take away that horrible blinder. Because back in the first century, groups like yourselves were the persecuted. And the Jewish synagogues were the ones that were putting people like you in jail. And they, like Saul did before he came into the Lord, and actually taking their lives. But the tragedy of church history is that the church, as they grew and multiplied, instead of holding the keys of David and opening the door of salvation, they began to live just for now and just for this earthly kingdom. And so in many ways in church history, the organized Christian church has become the synagogue of Satan. But Jesus is still saying down through time, as you're being persecuted, whether it's from any source, whatever source it might be, you don't have to feel like you're a loser. You don't have to feel like they're in control. Because Jesus is promising those that are persecuted, he says that one day those that are persecuting you are going to come and bow down before you. In Isaiah 60, in Isaiah 60, it predicts, it, it predicts all the Gentile nations will one day come to Jerusalem and they will fall down at the feet of God's Old Testament people and they will be adored and worshipped. And in the book of Isaiah, it's a great reversal. Because here's the people that have been butchered by Nebuchadnezzar. They've been torn apart by the Assyrians. Their entire nation has been devastated and sent into exile. And yet Isaiah made this incredible promise. One day, one day, those Gentile nations that persecute you are now going to come. But in Revelation, in the first century church, things were reversed. Now the Jewish people, sadly, instead of responding to the Messiah, these Jews in Philadelphia were attacking those that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Those that believed that Jesus was the Savior that could forgive them for their sins. And now they are persecuting the church. But Jesus says, don't fear. Don't back off. Don't feel like you're in a losing position because Jesus says one day, because I hold the keys, because I hold the keys one day, those very people that are now condemning you, you see, what they were telling the young Christians is you're, gonna, you're, you're not in the right group. You haven't found the true Messiah. You've joined the wrong religion. You need to come back and join the synagogue again. And so it was a tremendous temptation for these young Philadelphian believers, just like the temptation for some of you. Some of you have come out of different religious backgrounds that were focused on good works and focused on tradition and focused on going through rituals. And you've radically come to a point in your life where you have trusted Jesus alone for your salvation. Some of you are going to be tempted to come back into the fold of other forms of human religion. And Jesus is saying, please don't do that. Because if you've grabbed a hold of me, if you put your faith personally in me, if you've trusted in the Holy One who's in a class by himself, you've trusted in the true one who will keep his promises to you, if you've trusted in Jesus who is the Yeshua, the Messiah of the Old Testament, he is the Yeshua for Jews and Gentile alike. He says one day, one day you're going to be standing as his children, as his bride, and all the nations of the world, even your enemies, will come and they will bow down before you. Because of the glorified body that you have in Christ. Because of the glorified position you have in Christ. Not kind of preaching a, a pride and, and longing for people to do that. But that's the way heaven's going to be. You and the, those that have followed Jesus are going to be worshipped and adored. Because of their high standing in the kingdom of God. 
But you know, I think there's another side to this, the idea of them coming and, and, and doing homage with us. To be close today, you know, the Bible says that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. One day every, everybody's going to be flat on their face before Jesus. I think Jesus is also telling these Philadelphian believers, you know, some of the people that are persecuting you, instead of coming one day because they're forced to pay homage to you, some of them, I'm going to give you some of them to respond to Jesus and to open their hearts to Christ and to know him. And I want you to pray that the door that opens, the Jesus who opens door, if he could take Saul the persecutor and cause him to become Paul the apostle, then we can have walking through our doors 21st century Saul's that had become Paul's. Why? Because we have the one who opens the door. Father, I pray that you would help us to really capture a vision of Jesus as the distinct Holy One. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would powerfully cause your spirit to help us to adore him, to grow in our praise and admiration of him. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would really help us to understand this delicate issue of the persecuted becoming the persecutor. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would protect us from ever using power games or manipulation or political power to try to get people to conform to our spiritual beliefs. Instead, Lord, I pray that we'll rely upon the higher power of your Spirit's power, causing people to be transformed from within because of the consistent testimony for Christ that we live. And I would ask you, Lord, that we would be willing to face persecution and abuse even this week that when people tease us, when they call us names, when maybe we don't get the position that we wanted to get because we're followers of Christ, I pray that we will not get discouraged, but that we will realize that if we're willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus today, if we're willing to keep proclaiming the message of forgiveness and love that comes through Jesus, that one day we are going to be acclaimed, that one day we're going to be adored and honored, one day we're going to get all that acclaim that our heart longs for, But Lord, our only prayer at that time is going to be, give all the praise and all the adoration to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.